Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. This is Doug Taylor. It is February 14th, 2010. Thank you so much for joining tonight uh, or uh, this morning for, uh, for some of you. Um, I'd like to cover something just a little bit different uh, that I uh, was given over by Rabbi Morton Moskowitz in a shear that he gave a week ago. And it is such important material that I thought it, uh, you would uh, enjoy it and hopefully benefit from it. And uh, so I wanted to share that with you. So what I'm about to go through uh, is Rabbi Moskowitz's shear, not mine, uh, but information again that I think uh, can be helpful to us all and uh, ties in um, very well to our study of uh, the book of Proverbs. Rabbi Moskowitz uh, discussed the tenth basic principle of faith of Maimonides, which is that God knows the deeds of men and hasn't forsaken them. So this idea runs contrary to people who say, well, God abandoned mankind or has abandoned the earth or isn't paying attention or uh, whatever they might say. Uh, and there are examples in the Torah, one obviously is uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, when it indicates that God clearly saw what was going on uh, there and took action accordingly. So Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to ask the question that if you look at the human condition and you look kind of around the world at mankind, we see that evil often seems to rule and that sometimes it seems that good people have uh, difficult or terrible lives. And, you know, that raises the question sometimes of, well, where's God's justice? And people will sometimes come to the conclusion, well, there is no God or he's uninvolved in the human condition. So we, we want to ask, how is this tenth basic principle of faith that Maimonides puts forth how is that principle operative? Uh, and we can really distill that uh, perhaps down to two questions. Number one, why is evil successful? Because it sure seems sometimes like it is. And two, why do we see that righteous people sometimes have what appear to be catastrophic situations? Uh, now, we've talked about evil and how uh, you know, there are consequences of evil and, and so forth. But, you know, we, we uh, still look around and see that sometimes it looks like evil people are pretty successful and it seems like righteous people have very catastrophic situations. So, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz brought up Psalms 92, verses 7 and 8. And I'm reading from the Art scroll, uh, scroll Translation, and it says, A boar cannot know, nor can a fool understand this, when the wicked bloom like grass, and all the iniquitous blossom, it is to destroy them until eternity. And you're probably familiar with that psalm. A boar cannot know, nor can a fool understand this, when the wicked bloom like grass, and all the iniquitous blossom, it is to destroy them until eternity. Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that a fool 
is a person that makes a decision based on his five senses without further investigation. A wise person goes beneath the surface to see things that you don't see on a superficial level. So how do we see God's justice in the world? Well, when a person starts on his road to evil, he has plans, and he will generally, a really evil person, will work things out. However, since those plans are based on his emotions, then when he's successful, he starts feeling great and, and really uh, gets a sense that he can't fail. Uh, classically, that's, as I understand, referred to as megalomania. That is ultimately the failure of the wicked. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that Hitler failed, not at the very end, but at the height of, of the war when he was spread over Russia, and he should have pulled back. Winter was coming, and his generals wanted to pull their troops back and hunker down for the winter, and then, you know, get resupplied and regroup, and then continue fighting in the spring. But that required them to pull back a bit. And Hitler's response, as I understand it, was, I will not give up one inch of German soil. And that was the beginning of the end. That was at the height of German power. So the verse is telling us that the success of the wicked is his end. Going back to the, to the verse, uh, when the wicked bloom like grass and all the iniquitous blossom, it's like they're at their peak, their heyday. And that is the indication of their end. A wise person, well, let me go back to that. That, that the success of the wicked person, then that is their downfall. Okay? Now, a wise person will go beyond the five senses of, of what they see, and they will see something deeper going on. Now, Let's take a look at a different source uh, that Rabbi Moskowitz cited, and that's in the book of Judges. And you're probably familiar uh, with uh, Sisera and how he was uh, uh, making war against the Jews, and uh, he was defeated. Uh, in chapter 4, uh, verse 15 of Judges, it says, Hashem confounded Sisera and all the chariots and the entire camp by the edge of the sword before Barak. Um, and then Sisera dismounted from his chariot and fled on his feet. Okay, And then it goes on. Now, Sisera goes and hides uh, in a tent uh, of Jael, uh, the wife of Heber the Kenite, and uh, Jael uh, gives him uh, some uh, milk to drink and uh, gets him tired. And then she takes a tent peg and a hammer 
and drives the pen pe ten peg into his temple uh, and uh, into the ground, and he died. Now, Deborah then in uh, chapter 5, Devorah, sings a song, and it takes up uh, all of chapter 5, and goes all the way to the end, and then in verse 28, and that's what we're leading up to here, the song talks about Sisera's mother. Now, Sisera goes out to battle. Sisera's mother is, uh, uh, you know, waiting around for him to return. And chapter, uh, verse 28 in chapter 5, and again I'm reading from the Art Scroll translation, says, Through the window she gazed. Sisera's mother peered through the window. Why is his chariot delayed in coming? Why are the hoofbeats of his carriages so late? The wisest of her ladies answer her, and she too offers herself responses. Are they finding? Are they not finding and dividing loot? A comely captive, two comely captives for every man, booty of colored garments for Sisera, booty of colored embroidery, colored doubly embroidered garments for the necks of the looters. So may all, and I'm still quoting the Song of Deborah, uh, so may all your enemies be destroyed, O Hashem, and let those who love him be like the powerfully rising sun. Or I, I'm, excuse me, I'm quoting the uh, verse 31 there. And then it says, then the land was tranquil for 40 years. Well, there is a question. So she's looking out the window, waiting for Cicero to come home, and saying, gee, why is he delayed? Uh, why is his carriage so late? And they all sit around and talk about, oh, he's dividing loot. They got, you know, all this spoils of war and so forth. And then... Uh, the text reads, So may all your enemies be destroyed, O Hashem. Well, where's the destruction? What, what's the destruction being talked about in verse 31? I mean, we don't see any destruction of Sisera's mother, or at least it doesn't appear so. So what is being referred to? And Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that the destruction is that a person becomes psychotic and starts looking at life incorrectly. They lose their mind. Sisera's mother, in this case, had lost her ability to think rationally. We could say she was sort of over the top. She, she had lost her grasp on reality. She just kept, was, kept rationalizing, oh, why isn't he back? Well, he's not back because of this. They got some big spoils of war, da-da-da-da-da. The idea that her son could be killed, could be dead, does not seem to be in her rational thought faculty as, an, as a possibility. She had lost her grip on reality. At the end, I understand Hitler was sending out troops that didn't exist. He had lost his grip on reality too. Now, there are two types of psychosis, and again, I'm, I'm quoting Rabbi Moskowitz here. First, the person has no knowledge of reality at all, and then the second is the fool who looks only at the present. And until the facts, the real harsh physical facts, tell him how it really is, 
he can live in that totally psychotic state and ignore reality. But when the physical facts finally come through and there's no, no hiding from it, the shock at that point is greater because the person has fooled themselves up until that point. So the catastrophe is much greater because they've been living in this world of non-reality. So it's not just that reality catches up with them. It's that they've been in denial so long that the distance between them and reality has now become very, very great. So when they are finally forced to face reality, if they're able to do that at all, the realization of how far reality is from them is so great that it's catastrophic for them. And I will submit that some can't or won't accept that. And we could classify that as insanity. For others who are able to accept it, the sudden stark realization of how far they have moved away from reality is so big that it's terribly wrenching to accept it. So what we see here is God's justice in the success of the wicked, in that that very success is their downfall. Okay? Any questions up until this point? Naomi, uh, in verse 31, it is my understanding that, that uh, the first half of that verse... But the first, at least the first part, where it says, So may all your enemies be destroyed, O Hashem, uh, and let those who love him be like the powerfully rising sun. It is my understanding that that is still the continuation of the Song of Deborah. Uh, now, I'm not an expert on, uh, on that part, but I notice um, in the Art Scroll notes, the last part of that verse says, And the land was tranquil for 40 years. And the footnote uh, in the Art Scroll Book of Judges says, this was not part of Devorah's prophecy. Rather, Samuel, the author of the Book of Judges, reported that her great triumph led to many years of peace. That's according to Rashi. So apparently the prophecy or the song that uh, Devorah was given goes up to the phrase, and let those who love him be like the powerfully rising sun. Okay, any other questions before we continue? Okay, good, thanks. So let's talk further about God's justice. So many times when we're very angry, we can think of many ways of tormenting the person that we're angry at. And when you think of what Hitler actually did, it seems like he got off easy. I mean, we would like to make the person suffer. So we have to be very careful to distinguish and define the difference between God's justice and our idea of vengeance. So let me ask a question. What is the purpose of punishment? What is the purpose of punishment? Any thoughts about that one? What is the purpose of punishment?
let me suggest a couple of uh, possibilities. I'll suggest that punishment exists only for one of two purposes. First, it's, e it's to protect society. Uh, for example, in the case of executing a murderer. Uh, or in, in some societies, uh, they, they lock those people up. Because we have to protect society. It's a very practical thing. You can't have somebody running around that's just, you know, rampantly killing or hurting people. Okay. And two, and Naomi, thank you, uh, to correct us from the wrong path. Yes, the second purpose I would submit is to change behavior. So when a parent, for example, spanks a four-year-old child for running out into a busy street where the child might be hurt, it is hopefully not for any kind of vengeance, but to influence and change behavior for the child's own safety. And because the child is too young to rationally understand why you don't run out in a busy street of traffic, the parent will inflict some kind of physical punishment on the child so that the child associates pain with that action and will not do it. But you wouldn't do that with a 20-year-old. You would say, don't go out in the, you know, in the street because you'll, or in the freeway because you'll get run over. So a wise person, a wise parent, will craft punishments not to hurt a child, but to constructively change behavior. Yes, Pamela, to, to properly uh, implement correction. It's not about vengeance. It's not about hurting them because they hurt me or wanting to watch them suffer or anything like that. It's how can behavior be best corrected? So true justice will evaluate the crime and the appropriate punishment. Revenge is where I just want to hurt the person. So what is God telling us when the wicked person is destroyed? Because we've just talked about how we see that a wicked person is destroyed. And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to suggest that God's justice is that when you do not operate as a thinker, when you do not go beneath the surface to see and understand what's really going on, and you only operate on the basis of the immediate, and your emotions are making all the decisions, God's justice is that that part of you will totally take over and force you to deny reality even when it's pretty obvious. And only when it gets very obvious will reality hit you. The destruction is that you're totally lost to reality and you only make decisions like an animal. That is when something physical happens. And then comes, hopefully for you, the recognition of reality, which by that time you've gotten a long way from, and that has to be catastrophic, as we just earlier described. By contrast, Vengeance is just about hurting the other person. So if you don't become a thinker, then Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting you will become a psychotic. Not necessarily a diseased psychotic who can't think at all, but somewhat a psychotic. That is the destruction of the wicked person. 
that is designed to give a message to anyone else. If you're a fool or a wicked person, you will pay the price. You have to become a wise person. You have to become a thinker. That's God's justice. That if you that you have to become a wise person because otherwise you get the consequences. And this can easily be seen in the way people operate in our society. People who do evil or foolish things, and then they get caught, and then they deny it. Or they claim that it was somebody else's fault, or they have all manner of excuses for why things went wrong, except to look at themselves. So God's justice is to educate you through the example of these people that you need to become a thinker. That's the point of the wicked being destroyed. It's to teach other people. So we go back then and look at, at um, Psalms 92, when the wicked bloom like grass and all the iniquitous blossom, it is, it is to destroy them until eternity. It's not about God, you know, getting even or getting vengeance or whatever. I mean, it's his creation. The, the point of those people being destroyed is an opportunity for us, for other people, to see that and use that as a signpost to go down the correct path. So, if we end up being jealous of the wicked then there's really something lacking in our thinking or our knowledge about what life really is because why would we want the life of the wicked? I mean, it leads to destruction. And, you know, and we, there are many, many examples of that in, uh, you know, in today's society and, and in history. And one of the ways that we can understand this is by going over and over these ideas step by step until we clearly see the reality of the life that the wicked actually live. It is not, you know, a life to be envied. It's, it's bad news um, and, and ultimately leads to uh, their downfall. Will they experience a few physical pleasures along the way? Yes. But the foundation on which they're basing their lives and what they're looking for is not going to ultimately satisfy them and will ultimately, uh, or can ultimately lead to their destruction. Okay, and just to make sure, we're only talking about the success of the wicked here. We're not talking about the success of the righteous. The success of the righteous is a completely different thing based on a different foundation. But we're just talking about the success of the wicked. Okay, let me pause for questions. Make sure there are not any before we take the next step. Any questions so far? Okay. Now that raises the question, or that answers our original question of why are the evil or the wicked successful? And Naomi, you've asked, will, will the wicked always be successful? Well, they're successful in a temporary way. 
and to the degree that a wicked person lays out plans carefully, then initially they may be successful. Now, eventually, I mean, I'm not sure the time frame of your question there, eventually it's my understanding that the entire world will come to the understanding of Hashem. Uh, and whether um, you know there will be wickedness in those days, uh, that's not my area of expertise, and I can't I can't comment on that. But to the degree that a wicked person lays out careful plans, they may be temporarily successful. Uh, a person who really figures out you know the very best way to rob a bank could potentially be successful initially. But that success that very success is their downfall because, as we've discussed before, what are they doing? They are training their mind that they can shortcut reality. And so that success of their initial wickedness moves them farther and farther from reality and the very fact that they are doing that sets them up for an eventual downfall because they're not operating in accordance with reality. So the very success, in a sense, is the beginning of the end. Right, it is a temporary thing. It is a temporary thing. Okay, so now let's ask the second question that we raised at the beginning of the class. And that is that we see righteous people suffer. For example, righteous people suffered in the concentration camp. So where is God's justice in that? Now, to answer that question, let me ask you a question. If we agree that the ultimate life of a person is to become a thinker, then which of the following situations would be of better help in causing you to be a thinker or to enhance your ability to think? Number one, to be at a party or two, to be in a terrible situation. Which one would, in general, best serve you if you want to grow as a thinker? What do you think? To be at a party or to be in a terrible situation? What would you guess? I'd suggest that it's the terrible situation. As uncomfortable as that answer may seem, the terrible situation prompts questioning. When a person is at a party, do you question life at that point? Ah, you're in the midst of the party, life is good, you know, whatever. But at a terribly uncomfortable event, that's where you would start questioning. Job was a very religious man, uh, as the book of Job indicates. And then suddenly catastrophe comes. And what does he do? He gets involved in philosophy. His situation forces him to do an investigation. And the whole book of Job, for the most part, is about that investigation. And he has friends come in and they discuss and debate ideas and talk back and forth. So that terrible situation forced him into the world of discussion of 
uh, ideas. So if your search for truth is what's ultimate in your life, then sometimes what we might call suffering is good because that's what causes you to search and see things that you didn't see before. If your value system is the world's, that is, the ultimate thing is just physical comforts, then we would look at it and say, oh, the righteous suffer. But if your value system is the perfection of the soul, if that's your framework as to your purpose in life, then catastrophes are not necessarily a bad thing because they are a vehicle for the perfection of the soul. The catastrophe can help move you along in your investigation of your personality and your soul and can help you undo problems with your thinking process or emotional blockages or whatever that, uh, uh, your situation might be. Sometimes the catastrophe brings these things out. Undoing a bad trait that doesn't allow us to see reality is more important than getting prophecy. And Rabbi Moskowitz pointed this out. We see this, and let me say that again, undoing a bad trait that does not allow you to see reality is more important than getting prophecy. And Pamela, I'm not sure if everything's coming across, but I am seeing, I think, the things that you, uh, that you wrote. So thank you. Appreciate that. We, we see this point from the story of Jacob. Jacob, you may recall, had a son named Joseph who the brothers sold off into slavery and then he became you know, a leader in Egypt and finally Jacob gets reunited with him. But that, didn't, that reuniting didn't happen for 22 years. And Jacob was so saddened uh, by that for all those 22 years that he couldn't get prophecy because you uh, apparently cannot get prophecy when you're sad. So in this case, he lost prophecy for 22 years. And this situation, however, allowed him to be able to deal with the issues that he had around uh, Joseph and his brothers. And I think we've uh, I've covered that story in a different class. Um, if you want to cover that story in this class, we could, uh, we could do that. But there's a, the story of Joseph and his brothers is a beautiful, beautiful uh, story with incredible depth that can be easily missed um, by just uh, you know, zipping over the, the top of the text. So for the righteous person, what we might call catastrophe can really be a good thing. So I'll submit to you that God is very aware of what is happening in the world, and it's operating perfectly, but you have to look beneath the surface. You have to become a wise person, a thinker, so that you can relate to God correctly. The wicked person is incapable of seeing the truth at some point. Uh, he's never learned to deal with life intelligently, so he doesn't know how to deal with the catastrophe. Now, 
in the um, in the class that Rabbi Moskowitz gave, someone asked, well, is the best life then the most painful life? And Rabbi Moskowitz's response to that question was, the best life is the life of truth, and sometimes that means experiencing pain. We could ask the question, when a righteous person is being tortured to death, well, what's the benefit of that? And Rabbi Akiva, who you may recall, uh, was a very great rabbi and was tortured to death by the Romans, expressed it when he said, essentially, all my life I waited to see what and who I am as to whether I could live through this. So the life of the Chacham, uh, the wise person, is the life of happiness, not necessarily a life of pleasure not about pleasure, it's about happiness. That doesn't mean he doesn't get pleasure. You know, certainly he experiences it, but the emphasis is happiness, accepting who and what I am. So the hacham is able to accept what is happening. So, for example, if a person has to go, uh, you know, through surgery, I mean, we would normally say, well, you know, to be cut by a knife is not a good thing. But if it's a surgeon that's, that's doing the cutting because he has to do something that's going to fix me or help me or save my life, well, that is a good thing. Now, I still have to go through the pain of the knife. But I would be happy that I'm going through that pain because I know it's going to make me better. So even though physically the pain that a person might have to experience is not pleasant, the Chacham is content with it because he understands this is an ultimate good for me. The ultimate thing for the, the Tzaddik or the righteous person is not the life of pleasure, but the life of happiness. I accept life for what it is. I accept reality. It's, it's not a life of pleasure. It's a life of no conflict because I, the, the Tzaddik is content with life. He or she has no conflict with reality. And I will suggest to you that all of our emotional discomforts in life come about because we resist reality. Let me repeat that. All of our emotional discomforts in life come about because we resist reality. It is not about the things that are happening externally to us that bring us emotional pain. It's the story that we're telling ourselves about those things that causes us the pain. Okay, now, that is a, that to me is a very, an idea that is um, relatively easy to understand intellectually and much more challenging to put into practice emotionally. Uh, because those emotions are still there operating and they, you know, will, will cause us to want to resist and say, no, it shouldn't be like this. Life shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't have this happen to me. Uh, this thing shouldn't be happening. But in fact, it is. And the Tariq or the Chacham, living the life of happiness, has moved to the place of no conflict with reality. They accept reality for what it is. Okay. This is what's happening. Now what's my next step?
What is my next step that I need to take? The difference between the tzaddik and the rasha, the righteous person and the wicked person, is that when the wicked person is in conflict, he tries to change the physical world. When the righteous person is in conflict, he tries to change himself. Okay. So, any questions on this so far? Okay. I will take no response as, uh, as a no. But go ahead and be, please do be sure to text questions in if you, if you do have them. So, Rabbi Moskowitz then asked this interesting question. He said, based on this discussion so far, what is the basic foundation of all of Judaism? And he said like this, he said, if you look at the Torah educational system, the first step they teach is Gemara or Talmud. It is a training of the mind, the learning of Talmud, which you have to have a teacher for. Uh, you, you can't just pick up a Talmud and, and learn how to do this. You have to have someone guide you. The, the teaching of Talmud is a training of the mind. There's a whole system, like a mathematical system, in uh, the study of Talmud. Uh, and so the basic foundation is to train the mind to be able to start seeing reality. Now, if your mind only accepts reality based on your five senses, which is how we all start out in life, you know, as little kids, what we see is our five senses. We don't really start breaking through into being able to uh, think about an abstract idea uh, or the kind of, of discussion we're having in, in our study of Michelin and so forth, probably till a child reaches about age 13. It varies but the child, but about in that realm. But at the beginning, you know, we have our five senses, so that's, we start, that's how we start out. And if that's all our mind accepts, um, then a person will not be able to see God because they won't be able to see reality because God is not physical. And if, if you can't extend your sense of reality beyond the physical, then you will never be able to see uh, God. And I don't mean physically see it, but be able to grasp the idea. Because if all you're relying on is your five senses, God's not physical. But if you can extend your sense of reality to the world of ideas, if it gets to the point where you can see an idea and the idea is real to you, then God can become real to you via your knowledge in the world of ideas. Everyone has a sense of reality. What can be changed is what that sense of reality attaches to. If your reality only attaches to your five senses, that's one type of reality. But you can extend it to the world of ideas, and it's important that you do everything possible to do this. And training of the mind is key in this. That's what we're doing through uh, our study of Proverbs. That's one reason why this class is intended to be interactive, and why I ask you to think about questions around the Proverbs uh, that we're looking at. Um, the, the study of Gemara and Talmud is even better than Proverbs, but Proverbs is a good book for us beginners. 
And by training the mind in this way, we extend our sense of reality to the world of ideas. Uh, and then that begins to affect our emotions. Uh, an example of this might be gravity. There is, the apple falls on me and hits my head. Ow! And then there is the concept of gravity. Gravity is an idea. Okay, the idea should be real to us. What we see is the uh, in the real physical world is the effect of that idea or that concept or that principle. We don't see the principle itself, but the principle itself is an idea. And so that's what we're able to do when we can go beyond just the five senses and begin to see principles and those and ideas and those ideas become real to us in the same way that things we observe and, and experience through our five senses are real to us. Then we're starting to exist in the world of ideas and then we can begin to uh, uh, see a, a greater understanding of truth and reality. So this is a very different view of both Judaism and Torah than most people think. Relating to God requires a certain level of wisdom. Uh, and perfection of the soul must come through thought, not actions. A person could keep the entire halacha, all the laws, and never think about them, never have any, never, never even, you know, give a thought to what they're doing. And that's a certain level. But just doing actions is not going to get you to perfection of the soul. You have to have thought behind those actions. Now, at the same time, you can't condemn yourself for who and what you are. You can only move forward based on your abilities and where you are in life. You have to accept yourself where you are and move forward from there. Pretending to be on a different level than you actually are is fruitless. It just doesn't work. Because then you're just fooling yourself and you're not in reality. So you have to accept yourself where you are and then work from there. And that too is a form of accepting reality and is a way of removing conflicts. Okay. Are there any questions on any of this? I thought these ideas were so, so important that uh, we should go over them. Very fundamental and, and unfortunately, you know, we see things that happen in our society today that seem incredibly tragic and the question, you know, uh, comes up uh, many times, well, gee, if there were a God, how could he allow something like this to happen? And where is God's justice and so forth? So uh, this helps to get uh, or answers to me that question uh, but in a, uh, a different way, I think, than most people would expect. I think a lot of people have the idea, well, well God should stop things from happening that I see as catastrophes. Uh, sort of like magic Santa Claus, you know, and, and if anything bad that I think is going to happen, or anything is going to happen that I think is bad, then God should intervene and prevent that. And that is a failure to understand the systems that God created, the laws of nature, God's providence uh, and how they operate in the world. Okay. Any 
questions of all. Okay, uh, let's go back then to our study of Proverbs and look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 8. Again, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 8. And the verse reads, A man will be praised according to his wisdom, but one with a distorted heart will be put to shame. A man will be praised according to his wisdom, but one with a distorted heart will be put to shame. So, what are the questions? And Naomi, we're on chapter, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 8. Sounds like you're having some connection difficulties there. Welcome back. So let me type that in just so you can see that. Get my computer keyboard to work. Proverbs 12, 8. A man will be praised according to his wisdom, but one with a distorted heart will be put to shame. So any questions you can think of around that verse? So I will suggest that a couple of questions. First, what does it mean to have a distorted heart? And second, why will one of distorted heart be put to shame? What does it mean to have a distorted heart and why will one of distorted heart be put to shame? So, and Naomi, good. Uh, what is man's praise? Right, a man will be praised. Yeah, what, what kind of praise? And how does that work? And Pamela, excellent question. Distorted by what? How, what does that mean? So, the first half seems to be telling us that a man will be praised according to his wisdom. And in an earlier class, we defined wisdom as the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. The ability to discern between immediate pain and pleasure and long-term pain and pleasure. But then I would ask, well, do we see this really happening in the real world? I mean, do we see that men are praised or women are praised according to their wisdom? Because it seems like we see a lot of men or women who are praised for things that aren't wise. In fact, people get praised for things that we could say are kind of crazy. Accomplishments that don't really mean anything. So what do you suppose the first half means? A man will be praised according to his wisdom. Okay, and Pamela, uh, good. Those are good uh, suggestions, and I'm going to hold those for just a minute because I assume those are talking about the second half. Uh, and we'll come back to those in just a moment. 
But we see people get praised for a lot of crazy things. So what might be happening? Any thoughts? Let me offer a suggestion. I will suggest that despite the fact that riches and so-called success are given a lot of importance in at least American society, uh, it's not necessarily universally true, but in I think an awful lot of Western civilization, uh, riches, accumulation of wealth, uh, fame, uh, and so forth are given a lot of importance. Despite that, people still recognize and respect and will praise a person with wisdom. The person that can act coolly in a situation and keep his head on his shoulders and anticipate consequences and act according to them, that person is recognized. They may not get the same flash-in-the-pan news media splash that a famous actor or a big-name athlete might get, but I want to suggest that people innately see the difference between foolishness and wisdom, and they respect wisdom. And the more that a person has, the more he or she will be respected and praised. And again, I'm operating, uh, Pamela, on the basis of the definition of wisdom that centers around the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. So a person who will choose uh, recognizes the difference between short-term pain and pleasure and long-term pain and pleasure. Uh, the person who will forego a short-term pl uh, pleasure or endure a short-term pain in order to get a longer-term and greater pleasure. So, for example, I mean, a, a, uh, a person who, uh, instead of running out and partying every Saturday night, takes that same amount of money and carefully invests it so as to grow up, uh, you know, a, a financial nest egg with which they can uh, turn around and do good things by the time, say, they get into their 20s or 30s or, or 40s, that person is praised for that wisdom uh, and insight. Um, people recognize that. They may not overtly you know, shout from the rooftops about it, but they, I'm, I will submit, they admire it and they respect it. Somebody who has that discipline, that willingness to, uh, to do that. And, and we, we see that in certain practical business situations. For example, a businessman who makes wise decisions, who takes into account long-term consequences and reality, the more that he or she does that, then I would say generally the more they will be respected and praised. And I'm not talking about somebody who um, makes, uh, you know, decisions to jack up the price of their stock or inflate their earnings or make themselves look good or that kind of thing, but the person who quietly makes uh, very uh, wise choices along the way, that person is, um, I think, 
praised for that and respected for that. By contrast, what's a distorted heart? Um, now, in the days when this book was written, heart, as I understand it, meant the mind. So a person of distorted heart meant a person whose thinking was distorted. And Pamela, you mentioned uh, that um, unreality or a false view of reality. That's exactly correct. A person with a distorted heart is not going to see reality clearly because their thinking will be distorted. Now, as we've discussed, if someone's thinking is distorted, then he's bound to make mistakes. And those mistakes will eventually expose the fact that he isn't thinking straight. And I would submit to you that in the same way that society respects and praises wisdom, so it also does not respect those who are foolish. Yes, some of those people get airtime and news media coverage, but once their foolishness is known, once it becomes known that the person has distorted thinking and is making you know, foolish mistakes, the mistakes that he makes I submit will cause him shame. And even if he doesn't feel shame for himself, the acts brought about by his distorted thinking will likely cause him shame in the eyes of the people around him. So, the per and this is not because we're suggesting that one ought to live a life based on what people are thinking about you, but that people recognize a foolish person. And they may not come right out and say it, but uh, there, there is, a, I think, an innate respect for true wisdom and a recognition when someone is uh, a foolish person or where their thinking is distorted. So the verse seems to be talking about the public's view of a person based on his or her way of thinking. A man will be praised according to his wisdom, but a person with a distorted heart will be put to shame. So the public will praise the first person and will uh, look with some measure of disdain on the person in the second half of the verse. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, any questions on anything we have covered tonight? Okay, then I believe we will stop here for the night.